Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Well, it's kind of hard to believe that we're already at the holiday season in 2020. It feels like 2020 has been here for a decade, and it also feels like 2020 has flown by. As we near the end of our calendar year here in the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, we're concluding our series on the book of Jeremiah tonight. We won't finish all the chapters, but we're concluding the series. And we're going to begin a new series next week entitled Songs for Advent. And uh, in that series, the aim is to be encouraging. We're going to sing some familiar Christmas carols. And those carols are going to form the framework using some scriptures that, you, that the carols use to kind of draw out the truth of scripture. And that'll be our scripture passages over the course of the next six weeks in that sermon series. I say all that to mention to you that on Monday, November 23rd, we're going to do some decorating. One of our desires is even though there will be less people coming through our facilities over the next several weeks, uh, we want to make sure that, uh, that our facilities look like they're Christmas-themed, right? I mean, we want to make it feel as comfortable as your home, hopefully, will feel during this Christmas season. And so if you can help us decorate on Monday the 23rd, technically we'd start at 4 o'clock, but if you want to come a little earlier, we will spread out. We'll ask you to wear masks and all that kind of thing, but you can help us by doing some decorating here at the church. Uh, as, as I was thinking about this message, this final message in the book of Jeremiah, uh, I want you to think about the subject of characters, story characters, movie characters, characters in, in life. And characters really make or break a story. If I were to talk to my boys, they'd probably tell me that their favorite characters, my oldest may say Harry Potter from the Harry Potter book series. Of course, Harry Potter is the hero, not always the, the, the best decision-maker throughout those stories, but he's certainly the hero when it comes to how those stories end. My youngest son may say Iron Man from the Marvel Avengers or, or Spider-Man, depending on which day you ask him the question. Uh, but what is it that makes a great character? Well, if you look at the way characters are developed in books or in films, characters, the best characters, have a story arc. They start somewhere and they grow or they develop. They have depth. Good characters are dynamic, not static or flat. They, they give you a sense of someone that you can identify with, maybe someone that you could model your life after, or maybe someone that you can just relate to. They're going through things that you're going through, and so that particular character relates to you. Or there's someone you put on a pedestal, hey, I'd love to have that particular place or that particular opportunity. Well, what we find is we close this series, Authentic and Prophetic, the Gospel According to Jeremiah, is we find a section of Scripture that introduces us to a couple of characters and then, of course, looks at a character that we've been looking at throughout the course of the study, Jeremiah himself. So what I'd like you to do is to think about three different characters, and those characters are going to lead us to ask and answer this question, will you obey or will you rebel? Now, we're going to look at different parts of three different chapters tonight. Chapter 37, chapter 38, and chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah. We're not going to read all of those, but we'll get a sense for who these characters are from a few readings. Let's start with chapter 37, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. 
Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Now please pray for us to the Lord our God. We set this up just a moment. The first character we're going to look at tonight is the character of Zedekiah. Zedekiah offers us a warning. The warning is, don't ignore God's invitation to repent. Now, we're going to set this up and uh, and look at some of the context of what's going on here. Zedekiah was the last king to reign in Jerusalem. He was the king that was reigning when Babylon started their two-year siege at Jerusalem's gates. He was the king that reigned when Babylon actually broke through the walls and came into Jerusalem. Zedekiah was the final opportunity as far as a leader was concerned, for the people of God to repent and turn back to God. What's interesting about Zedekiah is here in this particular instance, this story tells us, starts off by saying Zedekiah didn't listen to the words that God had given him. He didn't uh, obey. He didn't honor God. He didn't listen to Jeremiah, nor did the people. And yet, what does Zedekiah do? He sends some messengers to Jeremiah and says, will you pray for us? Because we know there's a siege about to happen. Chapter 37 relates a situation where Jeremiah is in prison because some of the officials thought he was um, basically leaving Jerusalem to go to the Babylonians. So Jeremiah was imprisoned. He had a council with the king. He talked with the king. The king asked some questions back and forth of Jeremiah. And it's just a really interesting conversation where Zedekiah asked, the kid, asked Jeremiah, what should we do and what should I do and what's going to happen? What is, do you have a word from the Lord for me? And, and that conversation continued into a, another set of conversations in chapter 38. Uh, the, the chapter 37 is a, is a time where Jeremiah was released from prison at the word of King Zedekiah, probably because the Egyptians moved into the region of, uh, of Israel and Babylon pulled its armies back away from the siege. And so Zedekiah got a reprieve. He thought maybe the Babylonians are going to forget about us. Maybe they're not going to destroy us. And so he backed off on some promises that he made to Jeremiah And of course, the Babylonians came back and started their siege all over again. And in that instance, uh, King Zedekiah had Jeremiah imprisoned. He threw him down into a muddy cistern, a muddy pit. And in that conversation time, or in that set of events, uh, after Jeremiah was rescued from the cistern in chapter 38, he turned right over to chapter 38, verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'll ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you'll not listen to me. And King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Chapter 37 and 38 relate two instances where Jeremiah was in prison, two instances where Jeremiah got out of prison, and they relate several conversations between Zedekiah the king and Jeremiah the prophet. And Zedekiah always wanted to know, uh, Jeremiah, what should I do? What, what should we do? What, sh- what, what should happen? What should take place? Should, should, we, should we 
bow before the Babylonian king? Should we rise up and fight? And you've got to know that in Zedekiah's mind, there's this significant tension. There's a tension because Zedekiah is a pretty cowardly king. He's not a man full of courage. He's not a man full of conviction. Uh, He's a man who listened more to his counselors than he did to God's word. We also have to know that, that Zedekiah is a king that tried to please too many people. He tried to please his army officers who, who wanted him to stand up and fight and wanted him to make sure that there was an army to stand against the Babylonians. Although the inevitable was always going to happen, the Babylonians were going to be able to outlast the people of Jerusalem. And he was a man who wanted to hear from God but didn't want to do what God was going to tell him. And what's beautiful about this story, and you've got to, you've got to get this, On at least two occasions in chapter 37 and 38, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah, what does the Lord tell me that I should do? And get this, verse 17 of chapter 38. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon... Then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. I want you to get this. We've worked through 15 or 16 messages in the book of Jeremiah. It's not been the most upbeat sermon series that I've ever preached. It's a little bit of a downer. It's a little bit discouraging. It's quite a bit convicting because over and over again, Jeremiah looks at the people of Judah and says to them, God says you're idolaters. God says you're wicked. God says you are despicable because you will not worship Him alone. God says you're choosing something else over Him and you need to repent and turn back to Him. And over and over again, for 40 years, Jeremiah preached the very same things. He offered the people of Judah a chance to repent and turn to God. And do you know how many of the people of Judah listened to Jeremiah? Not many. Baruch, maybe a few others. Not many listened to Jeremiah. Certainly not any of the leaders. Certainly not any of the kings. And God was well within his rights to look at the people of Judah, to look at King Zedekiah and say to him straight from Jeremiah's bold, courageous face, you're done, man. This is it. So you don't have any other chances, any other opportunities. It is over. Babylon's going to wipe you out. But I want you to get this. At the very last, in the final days of Zedekiah's life as king, he went to Jeremiah and said, what does God say? And God said to Jeremiah, if you will surrender, Zedekiah, the city won't be destroyed and you won't be killed. God is gracious even in his judgments. He is. The warning is this. Don't ignore God's invitation to repent. There's going to come a day when God gives his last invitation to you to repent. There's going to come a day when God is patient no longer with your opportunity to turn to him. I think it's fascinating that Zedekiah kept asking and Jeremiah kept answering. You know what Zedekiah did? Because he was a vacillator, because he was cowardly. He waited until the Babylonians entered into the city. They breached the city at night. 
Zedekiah and his counselors decided, I mean, think about this. If you really wanted to be courageous, if you really wanted to stand up to an army, if you really wanted to lead your people, if they came into the breach, I mean, you're thinking about Davy Crockett and the Alamo, Jim Bowie, I mean, the movies I grew up with, the characters, I, you know what they did? They fought to the last man. They fought to the death. They were men that you want to talk about, emulate. You, I want that kind of courage, right? You know what Zedekiah did? He didn't fight to the death. He and his men ran off. An act of final cowardice, they ran out of the city to try to escape the Babylonian army. Don't ignore God's invitation to repent. Because what that led to is the city was destroyed. Not just sent to exile, but destroyed, burned with fire. Stones were cast down. The temple was destroyed. Zedekiah was caught. When he was caught by the king of Babylon for his rebellion, for his vacillation, for his cowardice, the king of Babylon paraded Zedekiah's sons in front of him and slaughtered his sons before Zedekiah's eyes and then gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. The very last thing that Zedekiah saw was the death of his children before he was taken in chains to Babylon. I'm going to tell you this, folks. Do not ignore God's invitations to repent. Don't do it. I don't know if you're in the room. I don't know if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. Maybe you're watching on television. Maybe you're listening on the radio. Maybe you've pulled us up on Vimeo. Maybe someone said, hey, listen to our podcast. And you're listening to this in a podcast. I don't know. But if you are guilty of a sin, if you're holding on to an unrighteousness, if you have not turned your life over to Christ and surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior, Zedekiah offers you a warning. Do not ignore God's invitation to repent. You say, Pastor, but I haven't heard God's invitation to repent. Were well, you hearing it now? If you haven't heard it any other time in your life and you're in this moment and you're living in sin and you've not trusted Jesus to be your Savior, consider this an invitation to turn your life over to Christ. I'm going to tell you something. If you do not repent and turn your life over to God, then we can expect a fate like Zedekiah. Judgment, punishment from God. Don't ignore God's invitation to repent. That's what Zedekiah teaches us. There's another character, an interesting character, a character that we've not read much about in the book of Jeremiah. His name is Ebed-Melech. He offers us an example. Now, Jeremiah, as I've told you, he, he was not a popular guy because he kept preaching judgment. And so the, the counselors to the king, they came to the king and they said, Jeremiah won't shut up preaching about repentance and judgment and that the Babylonians are going to win. And so we need to silence him. So the king said in chapter 38, do with him as you want. And so what they did, they took Jeremiah and they set him down into a cistern that was carved out of some limestone. And they put him down in the bottom of this cistern where it wasn't, it wasn't full of water anymore. It was just basically muddy at the bottom. And so Jeremiah was put down in this cistern and he's stuck in the mud in the bottom of the cistern. And the counselors and the king were going to leave Jeremiah to die. And we pick up the story in chapter 38, verse 7. If you want to read about this guy, Ebed-Melech. Verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, 
a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they put Jeremiah in the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He'll die there of hunger, for there's no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Take three men with you. Your copy of scripture may say 30. I'll come back to that and explain that in a minute. Take three men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from their old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. And Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Now, why 30 and why 3? Well, translators are not entirely sure whether the intention was to have 3 or 30. And different manuscripts have a little different word here or there. Uh, It could be 3. That was all that was needed to lift him up. But it's more likely that it was 30. And the reason that it was 30 is because Jeremiah had a lot of enemies. He might not have needed 30 men to lift him out of the cistern, but he might have needed 30 men to stand guard while he was being lifted out of the cistern because he had a lot of enemies. What's fascinating here is the man who offers us an example. Ebed-Melech is an Ethiopian, and he offers us this example that it's always right to do the right thing. Ebed-Melech is not a Jewish, Jewish man. He was in the king's court because maybe he was a slave, Maybe he was an envoy that was sent to King Zedekiah for some purpose early in his life. He was a eunuch, meaning he couldn't worship in the temple. Even if he worshiped God, who was Lord, he couldn't go to the temple. As an Ethiopian, he couldn't go to the temple. As an Ethiopian who was, who was a eunuch, he certainly couldn't go to the temple and worship God. And yet, ebed Melech, of all the other people in the king's court who looked at the situation and said, it's wrong that we have d- d- sent... A 60 to 70 year old man to die in the bottom of a cistern, he was the one to speak up. He was the one to say, this isn't right. He was the one to say, I've got to find a way to rescue Jeremiah out of this situation. And Ebed-Melech didn't just go do something on his own, he went to the king. He told the king what had happened. And he got authority from the king to rescue Jeremiah. He even thought about a poor old man. Poor old prophet, down in the middle of a muddy cistern. He didn't just send ropes down and said, hold on to the ropes, Jeremiah. He sent rags and cloths down so that Jeremiah could put them under his armpits. You ever had rope burn? Not a fun experience. I know some of you have had rope burn. It's not enjoyable. He wanted to make sure that that Jeremiah was not only secure in being rescued, but that he was comfortable in being rescued too. He did the right thing. He rescued Jeremiah in that particular situation. What a story. What a testimony. I don't think in my entire life I've ever heard a sermon about Ebed-Melech. But it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful instance of a man looking at a situation that was wrong and saying, I'm going to do something to right that situation. Here's what he teaches us. He teaches us that it's always right to do the right thing. Do you get that? Do you understand that no matter what is going on in the world, the chaos and the craziness, the division, the frustration, the ignorance, the anger, all of the things that are permeating the culture in which we live, it's always right to do the right thing. It's always right to love a neighbor. It's always right to take care of someone who is hurting. It's always right to feed someone who is hungry. It's always right to minister to someone in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of this. 
a week or two ago, the Thursday show interviewed Rosalie Patton, who serves as one of the leaders of our Women on Mission. And in that interview, she was talking about different things the Women on Mission do. They support a mission partner regularly. They're the ones coordinating the Operation Christmas Child boxes. Every year, they, they try to support Ebenezer Christian Children's Home in a variety of different ways. And some years, they've done banquets or they've done cookouts and things like that. This year's different. They can't do that. And so the Women on Mission took ice cream to kids who have been isolated with remote learning in their homes there at Ebenezer Christian Children's Home. I mean, who thinks to do stuff like that? Somebody who's a lot nicer than I am. It's always right to do the right thing. And I love how in, in Rosalie's life and the life of the women on mission and the life of those who support His Light Ministry and the life of our Sunday school classes who aren't even meeting necessarily on campus every week, but they're still supporting His Light and making meals for His Light during the week. It's always right to do the right thing. This Christmas season, no matter how frustrating it gets, no matter how, uh, uh, you know, difficult life is, how things are odd and different. Let me tell you something, folks. As a body of believers, followers of Jesus, we ought to do the right thing. You say, why did he do the right thing? Why, why did he care about Jeremiah so much? Well, if you look over in chapter 39, God promises to rescue Ebed-Melech. Chapter 39, verse 18. For I will surely save you. This is a message that God gave to Jeremiah. For Ebed-Melech. You can read the whole there in verse 15. But verse 18. For I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword. But you shall have your life as a prize for war. Because you have put your trust in me. Declares the Lord. I want you to get this. Ebed-Melech didn't do the right thing. Because he was trying to make God happy. Ebed-Melech did the right thing. Because he had already put his trust in the Lord. He had already depended on God, counted on God, surrendered to God. And as he looked around and saw there's a wrong thing happening and I can do something to fix the wrong thing, that's what he did. And folks, that's what we ought to do as believers and followers of Jesus. I can't fix the divisions in the country, nor can you. I can't solve and heal diseases, nor can you. But you know what we can do? We can love people and we can care for people and we can minister to people in the name of Jesus and we can make phone calls to people who are isolated. We can bring food to people who, who need it and who are hurting. We can do the right thing. I'm just going to encourage you as we work through this season, it's always right to do the right thing. Here's the third example. third example is the example of Jeremiah. Jeremiah offers us a goal. Offers us a goal. Live so that you can be confused for Jesus. Live so that you can be confused for Jesus. What do I mean by that? If you fast forward yourself into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking and walking with his disciples. They're walking uh, in and around the Sea of Galilee, and he looks to his disciples and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? Now, in this scenario, he's going to ask, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the testimony about who Jesus was. But before he asked the disciples specifically who they said he was, he asked, who do the people say that I am? And the answer was this. Some say that you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Some say you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Uh, now, 
what's interesting about that is I can only imagine if Jeremiah in heaven was privy to that conversation watching it down on earth. Hold on a second. Somebody's confusing Jesus for me? This is, this is, this is some really powerful stuff. This is amazing. Can't believe that that would happen. But I want you to think about this. Jesus and Jeremiah were a lot alike. The similarities are interesting. Their approaches to teaching and preaching were similar. They both used items or used parables to teach lessons, life lessons. They used action sermons, everyday imagery. Both spoke out against the surface religion practiced in the temple. Both were accused of being traitors to their people. Both suffered physically. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was brutalized. He was beaten. Uh, Jeremiah was arrested. He was put in prison on more than one occasion. He was put in a cistern. He suffered. He suffered rejection. Both wept over Jerusalem. Both were rejected by their relatives. Both knew what it was like to be misunderstood, lonely, and rejected. Both emphasized the need for faith in the heart. Both rejected the mere furniture of religion that was external and impotent. The point is obvious. Jeremiah became like Jesus because he shared in Jesus' sufferings. Comes from Warren Wiersbe. What an interesting analogy. Jeremiah looked a whole lot like Jesus was going to look in the New Testament. Why? Because Jeremiah was obedient to God. He had put his faith and trust in a living God. He'd been called by God. He'd been rescued by God personally and redemptively and individually. He'd be set apart by God. And when he was faithful to God and courageous to preach and teach the good news of what God was saying and the message of judgment to the people, he was ignored, he was rejected, he was persecuted, and eventually... I think he was killed for how he lived his life. If you go on reading in the book of Jeremiah, you'll discover that the exiles, not the exiles, the remnant rather, that was left behind in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah stayed with them. Uh, by the way, Jeremiah had a, had a uh, golden parachute. He had a free ticket in Babylon. His, his reputation preceded him. Maybe it was because Daniel had read some of his works uh, and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were, were friends. Of course they were, if you read the story of, Dan, of, of Daniel. Maybe it was because Jeremiah's preaching had made its way to Babylon. I don't know. But the king of Babylon, when he destroyed Jerusalem, made this specific affirmation. Take care of Jeremiah. Give him a chance to come to Babylon if he wants. If he comes to Babylon, I'll take care of him. I'll provide him food. I'll take care of him for the rest of his life. You know what Jeremiah chose to do? Nah, appreciate the offer, King. I've got to stay with the people that God called me to preach to. I, I, I've got to stay here with the worst of the worst, the least of the least, the poorest of the poor. I've got to stay here because I've still got to preach to them what God says for me to preach to them. And he continued preaching faithfully, even to the remnant that weren't even interested in what he had to say. They were so uninterested in what he had to say, they asked him what they should do. Should they go to Egypt or should they stay in Jerusalem? And he said to them, stay in Jerusalem. God doesn't want you to go back to Egypt. What did they do? The same things Zedekiah did. They heard what he said, but they didn't do what he said. They went to Egypt, suffered in Egypt, were killed in Egypt. He took Jeremiah with him to Egypt. I don't know why you would take a prophet that tells you things you don't want to hear to Egypt. That's exactly what they did. They took Jeremiah with him to Egypt. And, and if you go all the way over into the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, you get stories, uh, great stories, by the way, in the Hebrew faith chapter. 
stories that are, that, that, I mean, you know, you want to be like Noah and you want to have the faith of Abraham, right? We want to be the people who shut lions' mouths like, like Daniel or like the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Uh, but then there's another list of people. Verse 32 of chapter 11 says this, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies back to fight, back to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, please. Right? I mean, we hear those things and we're like, I want that kind of faith. But then the writer of Hebrews continues. He says this, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in the dens and caves of the earth. Why do I read that? Because tradition tells us, though it's not found in Scripture, tradition tells us that that one that was sawn in two was Jeremiah when he was in Egypt. The prophet Jeremiah, faithful to the last, faithful to preach and teach what God had said to preach, was taken to Egypt and cut in half because he was courageous and obedient to the Lord. Jeremiah offers us a goal. Live so that you can be confused for Jesus. Say, Pastor, there's no way. No way I can live to be confused for Jesus. But hold on a second. That's the whole point of God saving you. Romans 8, 29. The Bible says that God's plan of redemption for you is so that those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God saved you not just to take you to heaven when you die. God saved you to make you look like Jesus while you're here on earth. Say, Pastor, hold on a second. Jeremiah may have looked a lot like Jesus, but I don't. I'm going to make a confession to you. I don't either. I was reading in my devotions earlier this week. Book of James, chapter 1. It says, Know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And God shot an arrow through my heart when I read that. Because I'm not the nicest person to be around early in the morning. My sons disobey. I can get angry with the best of them. I can say things that aren't right and that are mean. You know what God expressly told me in my devotions this week? He said, Chris, you're not like me in that area. You don't look like me in that area. And you know what, Chris? I saved you because I want you to look like me in every area. I want you to be like Jesus, that's what I've done in your life. And we hear that message and we hear that truth and we're like, how in the world do we do that? How do we look like Jesus? How we look like Jesus is the same way we come to Jesus, folks. We do what Ebed-Melech did and we trust in the Lord. Folks, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, whether we were five or like me when I was 18, or maybe you were older and adult, what did you do? You confessed your sin. You admitted that you were unrighteous before God. You believed on the Lord Jesus. We still have to trust in Jesus whether we're saved or or, or whether we haven't been saved. 
Trusting in Jesus is the process for our spiritual growth. We admit that we're sinners, we believe in Jesus, and we commit our lives to following Jesus as Lord. That's our response to the gospel, that God has done what we cannot do. And folks, if you want to be like Jesus as a follower of Christ, what do we do? We admit in this moment and in every moment forward that I'm not going to be like Christ if I'm left up to my own self. And we trust in Jesus to change our hearts and make us right with Him. And we commit our lives anew to following Him. And that is a daily process. I don't have to be saved all over again. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. What I'm trying to say, at all, uh, trying to say is that we look back at the gospel and how the gospel brought us into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. What did we do when we came to the gospel? We admitted that we couldn't do it on our own. God wants to make you look like His Son. You know what that means? It means you can't do it on your own. God needs to do it within your heart. And that's a bowing and submission to Him. An acknowledgement of who He is. You know what happens when we do that? When we bow before Him and trust Him and surrender and we say, God, I know you want to make me look like Jesus. Will you do that in my life this week? God will show you an area of your life where you don't. And you'll confess it and you'll acknowledge it and He'll begin working on it. And you get that one nailed down, uh, then He'll show you another one and He'll show you another one and He'll show you another one and then eventually, you know what's going to happen? If we bow before Him daily and regularly and we trust in Him consistently, maybe one day someone would walk around Wilkes County, North Carolina and say, man, that person reminds me a whole lot of Jesus. That's what God wants to do in your life and in my life. Tied up with a story that I think brings these characters home. So listen to a book written by Barry Zito. For some of you, that name won't mean a thing, but Barry Zito signed the largest contract as a pitcher in Major League Baseball in 2007 for the San Francisco Giants. More than $120 million to pitch for seven years. Barry Zito was a fantastic left-handed pitcher with a great curveball. For those of you that pay attention to baseball at all, it's kind of a superstitious sport. I mean, they, they, they think you've got to do certain things to get hits and certain things to, to, to pitch well. And if ever your head gets off in terms of uh, pitching or in terms of batting, you can go into a, a very long slump. And after signing that contract, Barry Zito went into a pretty long slump. He was not near the pitcher after signing the contract that he had been before. He'd won the Cy Young a few years before when he pitched for the Oakland Athletics. Signed this great contract. And of course, as a pitcher, and it's in your head and you're not pitching well, he tried everything. He tried self-help. He tried gurus. He tried Eastern medicine and meditation. He tried everything because his dad had taught him that if he thought right, he would be a great pitcher. The problem is he was relying on himself. So much so that in 2010, after signing that great contract, the, the uh, San Francisco Giants were going to the playoffs. He was the highest paid pitcher on the team, the worst performing pitcher on the team. And his manager looked at him and said, you're off the playoff roster. His team won the World Series, and all he could do was watch. And essentially what that did is that led him to rock bottom. He had a car accident and some other things. His girlfriend finally looked at him and said, Barry, you need to put away all this other stuff and try reading the Bible. He did. He started reading the Bible. He actually went to Bible study there with the San Francisco Giants organization's Jeff Org, Dr. Jeff Org, who serves as the president of Gateway Seminary. One of our Southern Baptist seminaries was the, serving as the chaplain. And he looked at Barry one day and explained to him the gospel. And Barry put his faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
What did he do? He trusted in Jesus. His career wasn't necessarily resurrected. He had a decent next couple of years of life. But you know what he said? He gave this testimony. He said, the greatest thing that I've ever done is receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. All of those life-changing events that he came to, came to uh, car accidents and bad pitching and, and sorrow and shame and grief, you know what they were? They were God's invitations for him to repent. And eventually, he wisened up enough to hear God's invitation to repent. And he's on a journey to live like and look like Jesus. Folks, if you're watching, if you're here in the room, and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I would tell you, don't ignore this invitation to turn your life to Christ. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your eternal life and commit your life to following him. If you're in the room, you've done that. You've trusted Jesus to be Savior. Will you bow before him at some point today? Confess that you're not near enough like him. And ask God to show you some things in your life that need to be cut out so that you can look like Jesus. world would be a whole lot better place. Wilkes County would be a whole lot better place. Wilkesboro Baptist Church would be a whole lot better church if more of us looked like Jesus. Stand with me as we go into this time of invitation. Heavenly Father, I come to you in this moment and I pray, Lord, for those that are watching that this message is for them to repent. I pray, Lord, that the sweaty palms and the convicted hearts, the guilty consciences, would lead them to a place where they'll bow their knees before you and turn to you in repentance. I pray that that'll happen. I pray that that'll happen today. I pray that that'll happen in the next several days. I pray, Lord, that unlike Zedekiah, those that are listening would respond. Not respond in rejection, but respond in humility and surrender. And I pray for their soul and their salvation. Pray for that five-year-old girl, that 10-year-old boy, that 18-year-old college student. Pray, Lord, for that adult male who's lived his life his way. Pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and confession and salvation. I pray, Lord, they turn to you. And Lord God, I pray for those of us that have made that decision to trust you as Lord and Savior. We've got these examples in front of us to do the right thing and to look more like Jesus. And Lord, we're not and we don't. We don't do the right thing all the time. Father, I pray that we'd be willing to confess our sins. Seek Jesus and Jesus alone. And I pray that you'd make us look like Jesus. So that, Lord God, you can use us to make a difference in the lives of someone in our relational circles. A family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, community member, whoever it is. Lord God performing us the work that would make us look like Christ, change our hearts, and use us to make a difference in someone else's life like you used Jeremiah in his own day. And thankfully and prayerfully in our days, we read his words and his testimony. Have your way in our hearts in this worship service, in this invitation, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.